listening to the Jelly Donut Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I talk to the best and brightest in finance and economics. We'll go beyond just theory and discuss some of the most important real-world macro questions of our time. What happens next and how does all of this end? Pull up a seat and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they specialize in single-origin coffees. They're committed to long-term, sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I like to start off with usually one or two cups. I make it by hand at home with a pour-over, but it doesn't matter how you make it. You could be using a Mr. Coffee machine. It doesn't matter, but what does matter is the beans. You have to start with really high quality beans and you'll always make sure you have a great cup. So just say no to those burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee beans that you find at a grocery store and upgrade your coffee game. I'm going to make it real easy for you. Here's what you do. Just go to covacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A, coffee.com, and use our code JDP10. That's JDP10. And you get $5 off your first purchase. Do it right now while you're thinking about it. You'll be happy you did. I want to welcome our newest sponsor, Baron Fig. Whether you need pens, notebooks, or bags, they have you covered. Baron Fig makes tools for thinking. And they'll help you do your best thinking at home, work, and in between. And if you're a podcast fan, the small little notebooks they have are great for taking notes to refer back to later. I've been using their products now for gosh, over five years, and I love the craftsmanship and attention to detail. So if you like the podcast, show your support to Baron Fig. Go to baronfig.com and use our code JDP10, that's JDP10, and you'll get 10% off your first purchase. So go check it out right now while you're thinking about it. Today in the show, we have Lynn Alden. Lynn is the founder of Lynn Alden Investment Strategy, where she provides market research to individual investors and financial professionals with both a free newsletter and premium research platform. Her investment strategy focuses on value investing with a macro overlay. She writes for several publications and has been cited in Business Insider, Market Watch, HuffPo, and other financial media. She has a bachelor's degree in electronics engineering and a master's degree in engineering management with a focus on engineering economics and financial modeling. Enjoy my conversation with Lynn Alden. Lynn, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me again. Well, it's great having you back. So I was reading your blog post here, quantitative easing, MMT, and inflation deflation, a primer. And I wanted to have you back because this article was so well written and it's, you call it a primer, but it's, it goes even more in depth, I think, to be able to understand this whole argument between inflation and deflation and how exactly QE works and the different ways that governments finance their operations. And you really did such a great job. So let's just dive right in. 
Now, sure. first, I'd like to ask you, what was the impetus for writing the article and what was the background story behind it? Well, we're in a very macro-driven environment right now with uh, kind of unprecedented economic shutdowns that are being offset by uh, unprecedented economic, uh, monetary uh, and fiscal uh, injections into the system. So uh, having those two um, kind of unprecedentedly strong forces go after each other, um, I figured uh, with literally trillions of dollars of QE happening, it's a good idea to kind of break it down and see um, what does it mean, where is it coming from, uh, what are the different ways to think about it, especially because there's just so many different nuances about it, and people tend to focus on, say, one part of it or another part of it, uh, and sometimes you can get kind of lost in the weeds. So I try to just take a step back and just kind of focus on a really high level, like where does the money come from, where does it go, what does it mean if they don't do it, things like that. Yeah, this is great. And so you broke the article down in two parts. So first we can start with part one here. And the way you framed the conversation about inflation and deflation really struck a chord and I think made a lot of sense talking about how there's a lot of hyperbole when people have these conversations. Sometimes you'll hear words like Weimar Republic and this this runaway rampant inflation and um, you conjure up images of there are a couple a few countries like this and we've seen a few example where a few examples where they're just wheeling around this huge uh, wheelbarrow full of bills of, of cash bills just to pay for a carton of eggs or something like that and then you hear yeah. the the other side of the coin which is this deflationary bust where i've heard this with people sometimes talk about bitcoin because bitcoin has some deflationary aspects to it where people say oh well that's completely disastrous where you have these we could have this deflationary spiral and then you get you have an argument between uh, keynesian and Austrian economics and things like that so that was an interesting nuance too of how you talked about the hyperbole there yeah, I've generally found that in the debates, there's often a camp that talks about, like, we're not going to have inflation anywhere in the near future for, like, you know, foreseeable future. And they have another camp that's uh, kind of always looking for hyperinflation right around the corner. Um, and uh, you never really see someone talk about 5% inflation or 10% inflation. There's never – there's not too much discussion about what if we get kind of moderately high inflation. It's just not really – that middle ground isn't really discussed too often. And – uh, so I decided to kind of break it down into um, a little bit more quantitative to see how we can get different outcomes. So rather than say, like, this is going to be the outcome, it kind of proposed different thought experiments to see how we could get to different outcomes rather than uh, kind of just talking qualitatively like, oh, you know, they're printing money, we're going to get hyperinflation or no, QE in the past never caused inflation, therefore we're never going to get inflation. It kind of just decided to, to take a more quantitative approach to analyzing that question a little bit. Yeah, and you, you mentioned in the article before uh, 2008 we hadn't seen QE prior to that. I think it was in the 1940s, and there, it was a long time since we had kind of seen it before the previous debt super cycles you talked about. So there was a lot of misconceptions even among top investors and economists and and people like that. Um, and then you mentioned with the the moderate inflation, we've talked on the show about what if uh, rates were to normalize to say four or five or six percent. And we, you know, that's almost unthinkable. And we saw the 10 year get up to three and a quarter and markets started breaking. So let's yeah. dive right in here to part one. So you go over the four examples of government financing. 
Um, and so let's just start with n- number one, model one here, domestic government borrowing. Yeah, so in order to lead up to QE, which is actually the third example, I started uh, kind of with a simpler model and to see how we can how we can start with like what is the control group basically what is what is not QE and then how can we work our way up to see what QE is. So in the first model, uh, basically the the federal government funds itself uh, from domestic taxes and domestic borrowing. So in addition to uh, doing mandatory taxes, the people pay into and then they the the federal government spends it back in the economy in the form of uh social security military uh FAA uh Medicare things like that um, they also borrow so they they extract voluntary dollars from the the public and uh they issue them treasuries and then they also take that money and they spend it back into the economy and uh that's a really old model of government financing because you can you can do it with dollars you can do it with any currency you can do it with gold right it kind of has that the mm-hmm. economy is its own separate thing and the government comes along and basically just extracts pieces of that uh both voluntarily and involuntarily and then spends it back in so that's that's the first model that's kind of the control group for what represents how we how people often think of the relationship between government and the economy. Yeah, and there's a website Treasury Direct where people can uh, go and buy treasuries and I think it's bills, bonds and notes and some economists or when people try to defend some of the actions they'll mention that okay, you know, the US citizens can go buy this debt and there's a website available and those types of things. You don't even have to go through a broker or through like a Vanguard or a, a Schwab or a Fidelity. You can go direct. But it's a misconception because I think it's a very small amount of the general public that, that does it. Obviously, there are US holders like pension funds and things like that. So let's move on to two, which is the international government borrowing. Yeah, so the first model can get constrained after a while because they only want to have taxes be so high and they can only saturate their lending base so much domestically. Like after a while, you know, banks, pensions, individuals are, they've already lent as much as they're going to lend uh, as a percentage of GDP. They already are stuffed full of treasuries, right? So they, you can't just do that infinitely. Uh, so, uh, countries can also borrow from international sources. So, Emerging markets tend to do this frequently because they don't have a large base of domestic capital to start with. Mm-hmm. So they borrow from uh, wealthier uh, developed nations generally. And uh, it's rough on them because it's often in a currency they don't control. Like they often borrow in dollars and they don't print dollars. So mm-hmm. uh, that can often cause a debt crisis. Um, most developed markets don't do a lot of external financing, but the U.S. is a little bit of an exception because even though we're a developed nation, we still do a lot of international borrowing for our government. And that's a lot because we have the world reserve currency. So we run persistent trade deficits and we get a, do- a lot of dollars out in the world. And then a lot of our trade partners take those dollars and they recycle them back into our economy by uh, buying treasuries and buying other U.S. assets. So we, um, in addition to um, taxes and domestic borrowing, uh, our government uses a lot of ex- external borrowing uh, to fund its its uh, government spending. Uh, and back in the 1980s, uh, uh, foreign-held treasuries were less than 5% of U.S. GDP, but that has steadily increased over time. And over the past decade, it's ranged from about 30 to 35% of GDP. So we have about $7 trillion in foreign borrowing. 
Yeah, I remember a number of years ago there was a lot of articles coming out about China owning a huge amount of debt and just kind of the battle going on. And that obviously has ramped up tremendously in recent years with a lot of media and articles. Um, and I remember checking the stats and seeing that China held around four trillion and Japan actually held a little more than that. I think it was four and a half. So I, I found it kind of funny that the media had, didn't talk about that piece. I haven't checked it recently, but uh, you know the current stats there. No, I know that they own a large amount of U.S. assets, and yeah. I often look at it in a percent of GDP terms. That makes sense. Uh, so I'm less less uh, familiar off my head with the uh, absolute terms. That makes sense. Yeah, looking at it in absolute I, it actually doesn't do anyone any good or doesn't really tell a story there. But you mentioned different c- countries financing operations or deficits, and people sometimes point to Japan as being one country where they don't have to take outside financing. So as you mentioned, emerging markets often do. So is is that also a nuance that people sometimes miss? Uh, yeah, a really big nuance is uh, whether or not your obligations are denominated in your own currency. I see. So a lot of the, the hyperinflations that have occurred in history are that the country has some sort of external obligation. So the Weimar Republic had war reparations. Um, so a lot of emerging market, uh, hyperinflationary crises, they have, uh, you know, dollar based or other currency based obligations. Uh, or some, sometimes there's a hyperinflation that just involves destroying your, uh, productivity. Like, uh, in Zimbabwe when they, um, the, they really radically changed the way they do farming and that, uh, severely damaged their output. So a lot of the, the major hyperinflations in history have, often been a result of war or some sort of external obligation or productivity destruction. That makes sense. And moving on to the the number three, model three here, quantitative easing. And there's a lot of debate over this, so we can spend some time here definitely. As you point out in the article, another name for that is just asset purchases. So There was a debate kind of raging earlier in the year uh, with the overnight rate that spiked up to around 8-10% with the repo market. And there was this debate of is it QE when the the Fed was injecting this money in. And obviously they have uh, lending facilities, which are overnight facilities, and then they also do purchasing. So there's a lot of different nuances, but I think the bottom line there is you know, asset purchases are asset purchases. So you can argue if it's short-term bills, which are the shortest-term uh, securities, 30-day bills and such, and then you, you move up into notes, and eventually now they're purchasing the long bond, 10- and 30-year bond. So let's talk a little bit about how you're looking at QE. Sure. So uh, after the first two models, uh, you know, foreign borrowing and uh, domestic borrowing, uh, they can – then still run out of borrowers. So, for example, mm-hmm. United States, uh, in addition to having saturated its domestic borrowing base pretty thoroughly with, uh, uh, you know, 100% debt to GDP, um, the U.S. has also uh, um, really pressured the foreign lending market. So since uh, the end of 2014, foreigners have hardly bought any treasuries on net. Uh, they've, you know, increased their position from, uh, roughly six trillion to seven trillion, but that's actually a small amount of the total debt that was issued over that time from the U.S. Mm-hmm. So their ownership percentage of U.S. treasuries actually decreased from 35 to 30%. So foreigners weren't a big source of financing, uh, starting in around 2015. Uh, so 
for a while, the U.S. was able to go back to Model 1 and keep borrowing domestically for a while. So they were able to buy from uh, investors, banks, uh, all these different sources. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem was in September 2019, they they kind of tapped out that domestic balance sheet. So banks in particular, primary dealer banks, that's where they sell most of their treasuries through. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're the ones that buy at auction and then resell them to others. And uh, at the end of QE3, which was uh, it ended in 2014, banks had 15% cash levels uh, as a percentage of assets, and they had about 15% treasuries as a percentage of assets. Uh, but then during this this five or six year period, where foreigners were not really buying too many treasuries, and the federal government was really relying on domestic sources to buy. Primary dealers, uh, they s- slowly accumulated treasuries. So they went down from 15% cash levels all the way to 7% cash levels. And their treasuries went up from uh, 15% all the way up to 21% of assets. So they really, they, they, they drew down their cash levels. They bought treasuries, uh, and basically they were having trouble reselling them at scale to other secondary buyers. So they were accumulating on the, the primary dealer balance sheets. Mm-hmm. And, uh, in, during the week of the repo spike, uh, in September, uh, bank cash levels as a percentage of assets reached their lowest level, uh, in the post, uh, GFC environment, you know, this, this new regulate, regulation regime at 7%. Uh, so, uh, that's when we had the repo spike. They couldn't really lend more out because they, they're, they're required to have certain amounts of, of cash and reserves. And there's different ways to measure it that, you know, they have annual stress tests. They have Basel III requirements. They have all sorts of different requirements. So even though they technically still had excess reserves, uh, they were, uh, I prefer to look at it as raw cash as a percentage of assets. So on that metric, they were down to 7% or uh, post-GFC lows. Uh, and essentially what happened was that the federal government had been issuing $1 trillion deficits of, of net new treasury issuance, and foreigners weren't buying much, and Domestic uh, was kind of tapped out now. So uh, earlier in the year, in 2019, foreigners had briefly been buying again. But from August to September, they actually sold some. And uh, it, this, with a treasury oversupply and not enough dollars in the system, we got the repo blowout. And uh, the Federal Reserve, first they started lending in repo to fix that. But then they quickly moved on to buying T-bills. Uh, so uh, they basically became the buyer of Last resort to, to, uh, stop it, stop the banks from drawing down cash levels to have to buy treasuries. Right. And so just to simplify things too for listeners, there's a lot of people who know, but for people who don't, basically the Fed creates money digitally and they go out and buy treasuries on the open market from primary dealers, uh, essentially banks. And then as you mentioned, when they're in their buying, the interest rate is coming down and then um, really the primary dealers are just looking to kind of flip those uh, and resell them. So in that exchange, the digital dollars that are created are credited on the other side to uh, primary dealers, a.k.a. banks, and, um, and that is known as reserves. So that's basically kind of a nuance too to understand like what happens to those reserves, which you talk a lot about in the article as it pertains to inflation. Um, where this also gets a little tricky is before pre-crisis times, let's say pre-08, 
as you point out in the article, the balance sheet grew um, to around 900 billion, eight, 900 billion range. And it was growing organically with what's called open market operations, which the Fed uses to target that short term rate, one of the tools they use. So how do you view the difference between targeting that rate with open market operations and then basically the other like you talk about is actually running out of uh, people to buy the actual debt? One is that it's mostly a matter of scale. So mm-hmm. uh, prior to the, the 2008 crisis, the Federal Reserve, uh, their balance sheet was, you know, about 6% of U.S. GDP. So they did these small operations and they weren't, they weren't really increasing their balance sheet relative to the size of the economy. Uh, it was more of a steady state operation. But when you see these really big increases as a percent of GDP, that's a, that's a rapid change. That's a debt monetization rather than a simple operation to, uh, you know, maintain their different target rates. Um, so in this case, it is in some sense to maintain a rate, which is the, in that case, it was the repo rate. Um, but the, the bigger picture was that there are essentially too many treasuries, not enough cash in the system. So from the Federal Reserve's perspective, they did an asset swap. And that's a lot of times people refer to QE as just an asset swap. And in part, that's true because uh, from the perspective of a bank, right, they have treasuries. The Federal Reserve says, okay, we'll give you dollars for your treasuries, one-to-one. Mm-hmm. So we have that simple asset swap. But then the key is, where did those dollars come from? Uh, so right before they did the asset swap, the Federal Reserve just created them. So yeah, that's where – money coming in. Yeah, that's where it becomes a net injection into the system. So it doesn't – it's not a net injection into uh, a given bank. So from a bank's perspective – they give up treasuries or mortgage-backed securities, and then they get dollars, and it's you know it's a wash. But from a total system perspective, they are essentially low on cash. The Fed comes in, buys their assets with totally new cash, and then those assets move on to the Federal Reserve balance sheet, and then the bank is now free uh, with their higher cash levels to go ahead and they can buy more treasuries, they can buy more mortgage-backed securities, or they could lend more. Which they really haven't been doing, but they can at least continue buying those those safer uh, assets. Uh, yeah, and that yeah, that new injection of the system is the key. Yeah, I think that's a really important distinction, and I often counter to people that okay, if let's say these primary dealers were to, you know, go basically go back and and start. Yeah, like reverse that process basically. So, you know, let's say the Fed goes out and starts selling the treasuries back into the marketplace and the primary dealers were to kind of buy those treasuries back. Um, or, or instead of the other alternative, which is just rolling over the maturities as you talk about, is that a distinction where like if that process were to be reversed, then, um, it could actually like make some sense that the the new money could be removed from the system. That's essentially what they tried with quantitative tightening. So they did do a yeah, small bit of that. It didn't last very long, right? Yeah, it didn't last very long, and it caused a lot of problems. And they were able to do it because after after QE three, banks were filled with, uh, like I said, fifteen percent cash levels, which was their highest cash levels on record, uh, or at least modern record. So uh, when the Federal Reserve was quantitative tightening. Uh, the banks still had a buffer of cash that they could use to to buy what the what the Fed was you know not buying anymore, what they were letting roll off their balance sheet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but that kind of came to an end once banks got down to seven percent cash levels and started running into 
you know, kind of liquidity lines in the sand that they, they're not really supposed to go below. Yeah, and I think that was the response from critics of these policies saying, okay, let's wait and see when this balance sheet rolls off and we're waiting for this to happen. And so it took years to for them to start it. They finally did. It didn't last long. And Yellen had the quote about watching paint dry. And, you know, sure enough, the balance sheet was rolling off and then boom, it just uh, that didn't last long. It's back way up to uh to way above that four and a half trillion mark of where it was and we can get into that a little later but i think that's the key point there is now some people say they'll never be able to kind of shrink this balance sheet and the last piece of nuance there is that the fed remits the interest back to the treasury so essentially that is issued uh interest free is that right uh yeah they they collect a dividend and then all excess profits go back to the treasury Got it. Okay. And then that makes a lot of sense. So the last part here is model four, modern monetary theory. That's a tongue twister. Now you, we've seen this show up in the news. Uh, you can track Google trends and probably see the charts go up and to the right. Um, you saw Bernie Sanders, I believe an economic policy manager, Stephanie Kelton. I'm not sure her exact title. Talk about this. She wrote a book about it. There's been other people that talk about it. Some people bring this up when we hear about the government sending out stimulus checks or other types of uh, things that have been happening with these recent policies. And it, that's not quite fair, I don't think. Um, you talk about the nuances and explain it really well in the article of exactly what Stephanie Kelton and uh, Warren Mosler, I believe, who was a, a person who talked about this theory. This was many, many years ago, even though it's coming into fruition now. But you really do justice to to what it is and how it works in theory. So let's get into it a little bit. Yeah. So MMT, uh, it's based on older economic models. So this is, you know, the current version of it. And even in this current form, it's been around for a couple decades. Um, but essentially, they point out that the that the federal uh, government doesn't even really need to borrow, uh, that they can mostly just uh, uh, fund everything they want to do with taxes and spending money. And from their point of view, spending actually happens first and taxes come later. So, for example, you can't collect taxes if there's no money in the system. Uh, so in their view, taxes are what creates demand for that currency because you can only pay taxes in that currency. And so MMT really focuses on trying to make use of the fact that, that a government is a monetary sovereign and therefore uh, doesn't generally default nominally. And uh, that the only real limiting factor for how much money it can print, how much money it can spend is inflation. So they do different studies to see basically instead of managing uh, inflation levels with interest rates, they focus more on managing inflation levels with how much you spend compared to how much you tax. So if you're spending too much, you're not taxing enough. And uh, from their perspective, specifically, if your spending is far more than the productive capacity that exists, you can get inflation. Uh, but then if you, um, and you want it to, if you want to, uh, bring down inflation, then you can either cut back spending or raise taxes. And then the other side of the coin, if, if you're in a persistent, uh, deflationary or disinflationary period, uh, they would encourage either big tax cuts or more spending, uh, to, uh, get more money in the system to, uh, uh, fully utilize, uh, the productive resources and, uh, potentially, uh, increase inflation a little bit. Yeah, this makes a lot of sense. And as you point out in the article, it's similar in a way to how the system is running with QE and, and the Fed and the Treasury kind of merging into this one entity almost. 
And it's there's a lot of similarities, but as you point out, with less checks and balances, and what came to mind for me is, okay, like if we're, this were to work in theory, they just print the money and then the, w- the way to remove the money is through taxation and these type of mechanisms. And then this works because, you know, the U.S. and there's other countries too. We print our own currency so we can control that. But the, what came to mind is the way we're doing things now is we're doing a little bit of everything. So we're doing QE and then we're talking about maybe – doing some of this uh, MMT type structure. And then we're, we're also pretending like we're, or not just pretending, but we're also issuing money to foreign borrowers. So we're doing like everything here that you outlined. And then it can get really cloudy really fast as far as, you know, and then this is me speaking, not you, but to me, that's just a red flag where, okay, if you want to talk about how inflation could come up, if you're doing a lot of these things at the same time and it's not being managed in a control and controlled environment, then that could be a recipe for disaster. Yeah. My argument was that essentially what they're doing now with a very large scale QE is essentially a synthetic MMT. So mm-hmm. uh, they're still going through the, the legal uh, boundaries of QE, uh, but uh, what they're essentially doing is kind of mimicking an MMT approach. So Powell has literally pretty much said, like, we'll finance whatever the Treasury spends, right? So mm-hmm. uh, the Treasury can, you know, by doing things like those helicopter checks they sent out and uh, the the $2 trillion uh, CARES Act, uh, that's generally money that's, that's getting right into the economy uh, at a pretty large scale, and it's entirely being funded by debt monetization. So it's not being funded by increased taxes. It's not being funded by foreigners buying treasuries. It's not really even being funded by domestic sources buying treasuries. It's being funded by the Federal Reserve creating new dollars and then using those dollars in an asset swap to buy those treasuries uh, using the primary dealer banks as intermediaries. So essentially, we're already in uh, a very MMT-like environment. Uh, and that's that's been my argument for uh, this period of time. Yeah, and, and when you look at, as you mentioned, the Fed obviously owning treasuries as the large portion of the balance sheet, but as you mentioned, uh, mortgage-backed securities, otherwise known as MBS, and then even more recently, basically this gets a little bit confusing, but engaging BlackRock to do this type of facility that involves an off-balance sheet type vehicle known as an SPV, uh, where they actually hold uh, an ETF made up of junk bonds, a.k.a. high-yield debt. So is that something to where you think they're stretching the limits also of uh, kind of the law and what Congress uh, designed for them to do? Yeah, they they set up that special purpose vehicle to get around the existing legal framework. So they're really only supposed to be able to buy things like treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, uh, and they can do things like, uh, you know, central bank asset swaps, which they're also, which they're also doing and adding to their balance sheet. But, uh, that particular vehicle, uh, they get around the legal limitation of not buying corporate bonds by saying, okay, we're not the ones buying it. We set up this separate balance <laughs> sheet that the treasury, uh, uh, is agreeing to, to cover the losses for, and then we're just funding it. Uh, so they're able to buy these, uh, assets that, that technically have, um, uh, nominal, uh, risk of loss. And so the Fed's buying that through that extra vehicle. And then in theory, the treasury is, is financing any losses that the Fed has. But then the funny thing is that the treasury 
funds those losses by issuing treasuries that the Fed buys. So those losses essentially get turned into treasuries that then get turned into uh, debt monetization by the Fed. So the, the Fed is still covering the losses. They're just doing it uh, with the treasury as uh, uh, the sterilizer for those losses. That's really interesting. Yeah, that's a great point. And I remember back in 08 when PIMCO got hired to be able to do Something similar, but not with junk debt, but you quickly be able to see the overlap between the public sector and the private sector here. And then it gets pretty cloudy pretty fast. And as you mentioned, just the way the Fed is set up with member banks basically having shares in the Federal Reserve. So they get, I think it's around a 6% dividend. It's fixed and then all the other profits get remitted back. But that fixed dividend is pretty nice, especially at around 6% when you have rates as low as they were for so long. And then obviously you have the public side where the president appoints uh, the chairman and you have this supposedly kind of oversight and the separation, but you can quickly see how it's very intermingled with uh, the private industry and the banking system. That's why we're essentially in an MMT system now because the treasury and the Fed are working so closely together. So uh, in a more pure QE uh, model, they're still kind of separate, but as they've come closer together where uh, the Federal Reserve is literally monetizing all U.S. Treasury issuance. And uh, Powell is saying, you know, if you spend more, we'll monetize it. We'll buy it as needed. And when you go to set up these special purpose vehicles that literally are, you know, operations between the Treasury and the Fed, uh, we've had, you know, we have the closest interaction right now between the Fed and the Treasury that we've had since the 1940s. Yeah, and that's a really important distinction to understand how those two organizations, like you said, are working so closely and essentially kind of morphing almost into one uh, kind of agency or organization. So let's move on to part two, which is the inflation versus deflation debate. And one of my favorite commentators and writers, Ben Hunt, talks about this as being the, the one thing and the only thing really that investors need to get right. And that and a few other commentators was actually one of the reasons I launched the podcast and and to really talk about this inflation deflation debate, because it's, I believe, central to how investors think about their portfolios, but also just real world implications for all types of industries and shedding some light on and being able to understand how these me- mechanisms work. And obviously there's a lot of nuance, which is why this article is so great, but that's really what I wanted to do was have just maybe the average person, maybe a, another industry, a doctor or someone who maybe they're a teacher and they're, they want to be able to understand a little bit more about this. And that's something I think that we all need to pay a little more attention to of, of some of these nuances. So let's talk a little bit about your first title here of why so little inflation in, in the 2010s. Yeah. So after talking about the different forms of government financing, the second part of the article moves into inflation and specifically why we didn't have a lot uh, in the past decade, despite uh, QE. So, uh, part of it comes down to how you measure inflation or define inflation because um, we had r- roughly on average 5% uh, inflation in the money supply per year uh, per capita. So we actually had a pretty rapid uh, increase in the total money supply, but it didn't translate very heavily into uh, consumer price inflation. So we had 
very high inflation in some categories like healthcare, education, uh, services in general, uh, went up, uh, uh, pretty fast, but, um, goods and, uh, other types of spending, um, uh, especially like large discretionary goods, uh, uh, generally were under more disinflationary trends. So, uh, we've had a variety of long-term deflationary factors and that includes technology as a, a really big one. So for example, uh, your phone is, you know, from decades ago would be considered science fiction. It's a supercomputer that has, you know, just any, almost any type of free software you could possibly want as an app is just available to it. Uh, so mm-hmm. it replaces multiple devices. Uh, it gives you multiple capabilities and, uh, it's cheap enough that, uh, almost anyone can have one. Uh, so that's an example. And then in addition, all of our electronics, we mostly make overseas. So we have cheaper labor, we have offshoring, uh, sometimes we, we, do onshoring, so we bring cheaper labor here. Uh, so we have all these deflationary forces. Um, and in addition, we've we've been in a like a, a ten-year kind of bear market for commodities uh, because we had a, a large period of oversupply, which really peaked around 2012, about eight years ago. Um, so we have a lot of these uh, significant deflationary forces, and then that's somewhat offset by these more inflationary monetary policies, such as QE and deficit spending that uh, help increase the money supply, uh, but it hasn't translated very heavily into uh, higher prices for goods. Um, and But it has translated into asset price inflation. So uh, if you look at you know, stocks, uh, in terms of valuations, uh, if you look at uh, how rapidly gold has increased in price over the past two decades, uh, bonds, you know, if you, if you look at their, in, the inverse of the yield, if you look at the price of the bond, the valuation of the bond, they're at, you know, record highs. So we've had a lot of that money flow into the financial system and result in asset price, uh, inflation rather than, uh, consumer price inflation, especially on the goods side. Yeah. And there's something to bring up here for listeners. The name of the podcast is the Jelly Donut Podcast. And, Hopefully most people know, but if you don't, the reason it's named that is we're not a cooking show or a foodie show, but uh, we're named after David Einhorn's article uh, from Greenlight Capital that he wrote in 2012. And it wasn't so much his concern with QE, but the whole article really just outlined the problem with um, the ZERP and NERP bringing rates so low of how that's actual harmful to the economy. And as you just brought up, one of the issues there, among many others, is forcing investors out onto that risk curve. So sometimes I hear commentators on Twitter and in the financial media talk about, okay, again, QE, just an asset swap, uh, nothing to see here. And then they say, okay, well, QE didn't cause inflation. And then I've, I've even seen people say, okay, the, now the narrative has pivoted to asset price inflation, but it, to me, it completely makes no sense because obviously when you bring rates to, to zero and keep them there or nearly there for, for years, investors are going to move out on that risk curve. And that's a knock on effect of that policy. Right. So you, you almost have to use that second level thinking and dive into the nuance to be able to understand that. Yeah, it's a really challenging environment for investors and savers, especially people that want to have more conservative portfolios because uh, the Federal Reserve has an official inflation target of 2% a year. Uh, and, uh, they even have it a symmetric inflation target. So if they 
you know, undershot it for a couple of years, they're, they're happy to go over 2%. Uh, meanwhile, treasuries, uh, are yielding below 2%. Uh, bank accounts are yielding below 2%. So the Fed is literally telling you that we want to inflate your bonds and cash away. Mm-hmm. They're, 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 it's transparent. And yet, so if investors don't want to be forced into equities, uh, or at least, you know, a large amount of equities, there's just not a lot of places for them to go because all of these safer assets that are traditionally uh, great for retirees and pensioners and savers uh, are just yielding such low levels in this environment uh, that are even below targeted inflation rates. Yeah, exactly. And you mentioned the deflationary forces, um, all these other forces happening during that time. And it's been my stance is that this story hasn't quite ended yet. And yeah. That's also one of the reasons for launching the podcast is to kind of help investors see what might happen kind of in this next paradigm shift, which we can get into next here. One other quick note is I read a very interesting article a few years ago, but it was a graphic showing all the instruments and things that the iPhone uh, basically replaced. So they had this uh, GIF where it showed all these things just kind of disappearing. So as you mentioned, fax machine, phone. Um, it, I think they had like a hundred things on that list that yeah. your iPhone can actually do. Flashlight. I mean, you, you can yeah. literally go down the list. Yeah. So, so that was just a, another really interesting point. So moving on to the next, the next phase and kind of the last phase of this article here or second to last phase is modeling inflation in the 2020s. And you go into some real hard numbers here, as you mentioned, and try to look at it really quantitatively. Let's talk about, you know, this piece. Yeah, so my view is that most likely uh, over this uh, coming decade, the 2020s, we are likely to get higher inflation than we saw in the 2010s. And that uh, this this last round of QE uh, over the next several years is probably going to have different results than the prior uh, rounds of QE. So in the prior rounds of QE, uh, they did about $3.6 trillion in balance sheet increases. So they went from about 900 billion on the Federal Reserve balance sheet uh, before the crisis, and they got up to about 4.5 uh, trillion. I think I said billion before. I meant I meant trillion. Mm-hmm. So uh, they went from 900 billion to 4.5 uh, trillion. So they had about a 3.6 trillion dollar balance sheet increase. Uh, now that was offset by the fact that uh, total household net worth in the United States fell from 71 trillion to 60 trillion uh, from 2007 to 2009. So we had this big deflationary shock. We had housing prices go down. We had uh, uh, access to credit get slammed shut on consumers. So, uh, you know, uh, easy mortgage rates were taken away. Credit card lending was tightened. Home equity loans were tightened. So uh, we had a, a, you know, stocks went down dramatically uh, for several years and took years to recover. So we had this, this big, uh, deflationary shock that was actually far larger than the amount of money printed. Mm-hmm. And when people think of, of inflation, a lot of what determines overall, uh, you know, how much spending power someone has is their net worth and their access to credit. So for example, someone that, uh, taps into a home equity loan to buy a car, for example, is, is not relying on traditional money supply to buy that car they're they're tapping into their net worth and they're shifting their equity around uh so when we had that big 11 trillion dollar decline in net worth um we shouldn't necessarily expect a 3.6 trillion dollar qe injection to cause runaway inflation that some feared because it's just it's just offsetting part of 
a deflationary shock. And that, you know, it can have all sorts of consequences, like we talked about low interest rates, but rapid near-term inflation was not one of them. Um, it's a little bit different now because, so back then also, the major crisis was centered around the housing and banking sectors. So mm-hmm. banks had uh, very loose regulations for how much reserves they had to have. So uh, earlier in the discussion, we talked about, you know, recently banks got down to 7% cash levels. Well, before the financial crisis, they were down to 3% cash levels because they, they had, you know, very loose regulations for how much leverage they could have. So banks were very over leveraged, very uh, tied to the housing market. And a lot of those rounds of QE essentially filled up the banks with cash. You know, the first round of QE brought them from 3% cash levels to 8% cash levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and they took all, they took mortgage-backed securities and treasuries onto the Federal Reserve balance sheet. And then by by QE3 in 2014, banks were filled up with 15% cash. So a lot of that QE just wound up in reserves in the banking system to to reduce the leverage in the banking system, and not a ton of it poured out into the broader economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there were there were some deficit spending that that made it out there, but it wasn't it wasn't in the multi-trillion-dollar level. Uh, but going forward, this crisis concerns the real economy. So we have a far larger amount of job losses. Banks went into this, uh, you know, more well capitalized, uh, but they're, you know, due to the amount of loan losses they're taking. We'll see how that holds up. But this, this current round of QE has brought can't back, uh, bank cash levels all the way up to 15% again. So we're back near, uh, banks at all time cash highs. Uh, mm-hmm. and, the treasury, the helicopter checks, like the $1,200 checks that most Americans received, the uh, expanded unemployment benefits, um, all these other different subsidies that they're doing, this is more going out into the main economy rather than getting locked up in bank reserves. Uh, so going forward, especially because now uh, the treasury has so much debt relative to GDP that the Federal Reserve is essentially monetizing most or all uh, uh, treasury issuance going forward on a net basis. Uh, that this, this type of QE is currently more of an MMT variety where it's getting out to the broader economy, both into financial assets, uh, but then also, uh, just out into the broader economy. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And when you look at obviously the monetary stimulus that was going on previously, and that's also has ramped up and started continuing again, large-scale asset purchases and the like. But when you look at the other side of the coin of the fiscal policy, so we haven't seen the infrastructure bills and spending maybe for the next presidential term, but we have seen these different programs where money gets sent out. And I heard some people talk about this as far as causing inflation, where if you sent everyone a check, for maybe when we sent the $1,200 ones, as you mentioned, but if you send out, you know, 1200 that's one thing. But if you send out, you know, what if everyone gets a $5,000 check? What if everyone got a, a 20 or to use hyperbole, a $100,000 check or something? And, you know, what would that do to consumer prices? Yeah, for people that say that the Treasury and the Fed are powerless to create inflation due to declining money velocity, and other factors or, you know, banks not lending, uh, that thought experiment you brought up is the easy way to show that, you know, when push comes to shove, they can do, they can do whatever they want in terms of causing inflation. They can add as many zeros they want to the checks they send out. They can make everyone a millionaire, uh, in nominal terms. And of course you get inflation at that point. 
Uh, so the question becomes, what will they do? What are the magnitude of their policies going to be relative to the current GDP, the current money supply, uh, and how much that gets to the public, uh, and if that's enough to boost velocity or not, and where we could see inflation or at a risk, uh, runaway inflation. So, uh, that's the way to think about it. It's not can they, it's, it's will they. And it's, uh, when they do, uh, you know, what magnitude will it be and, uh, what time frame would that happen on? Yeah. So the next thing here is talking about the size of the deficit spending that's going to happen. As you just referenced, there's a difference between nominal terms and real terms too. Um, so that's something investors need to be aware of. But let's talk about the deficit spending and what that might do to this whole scenario. Sure. So uh, in the prior crisis, uh, the federal government had debt to GDP of about 65% or so when they went into that crisis. Mm-hmm. And by the time they emerged from that crisis, uh, government debt to GDP was over 100%. Um, so uh, the their, their um, deficits uh, reached as high as 10% of GDP during the peak of the crisis. And it took several years. Like you had 10% of GDP and then you had uh, 8% and like another year of 8%. And they accumulated so that by after like a five-year period, you had quickly grown up from 65% debt to GDP uh, to over 100 and by the time we went into this crisis, uh, the federal government debt to GDP was about 106 or 107% of GDP. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in this year alone, just in this pat, in the, in the first like two quarters of this year, uh, we're already now, uh, up to, you know, by most estimates up to 120 or 130% uh, of GDP. Um, and, you know, most projections that, that these jobs are going to just snap back into place this summer are probably unrealistic. So we're almost certainly going to have several years of just unprecedentedly large debt to GDPs. Um, and you can model a couple different outcomes, but it's very easy to get to, you know, debt levels of 150% of GDP or higher in the coming few years. And uh, since most of that is being funded by debt monetization, so for every, for all that uh, new uh, debt increase, the Federal Reserve essentially prints money and then buys that through the primary dealers. A lot of that winds up directly in money supply. So we've had, uh, you know, a 20 or 25 percent year over year percent increase in money supply, broad money supply uh, so far this year. And it's probably going to be a lot higher by the time the year is over. Yeah, that brings up a good point. I know when Einhorn came on the podcast, he talked about when Volcker raised rates Back when he took out the hammer and tried to combat, combat inflation, I think it was 1982. Bill Fleckenstein actually talked about this as well recently, talking about how the debt to GDP was so much lower at the time. And then let's say if rates were to even normalize now, um, and some people argue, okay, well, what is normal? But let's just say four, five, six percent on the 10 year. Then, you know, if, if we had to raise rates, or let's say the Fed had to come in and raise rates to cool off inflation, if that long end of the curve started coming up, or if we started really seeing inflation show up and at least the way they measure it, um, then that could be a real problem for, for the, for the deficit. Yeah, that's the key risk is that they can they can create inflation, but then if they create it, uh, they don't really have a lot of tools to address it because their main tool to address it would be uh, higher interest rates. And at this uh, current amount of debt in the system, uh, that would be uh, catastrophic for the system, at least in the near term, 
And so they're really stuck between a rock and a hard place between wanting to create inflation, uh, but then um, not wanting to raise rates when it happens. And actually, if you look at the, the latest uh, Federal Reserve meeting minutes, uh, they talked about doing yield curve control. And uh, we actually talked about that um, uh, in, our, in our previous uh, discussion yeah. uh, before this virus happened, where they were already talking about yield curve control back in 2019. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what they did back in the 1940s. So, uh, for example, back in the 1940s to fund World War II. And the reason that's a good pure period to look at is because that's the only other time that federal debt as percentage of GDP got this high. That's the only other time in history that uh, the, the Treasury market kind of found itself in this problem of, of just massive deficits in a high debt already on the balance sheet. And what the Fed did back then is they – they essentially locked yields, treasury yields, at 2.5% or less. So for the T-bill, they said, okay, it's it's 0.38%, and for the long end of the curve, it's 2.5%, and they were willing to create dollars and buy treasuries to maintain those pegs, and that's mm-hmm. what they did. So from that whole decade of the 1940s, they locked the yield curve at 2.5% or less, even when inflation sometimes spiked up to, to double digits. So – in like 1942 and again in 1947, I believe, we had these big spikes in inflation, but the Fed just created this artificial limit for treasury yields so that um, uh, over the course of that decade, even though investors and treasuries made money on a nominal basis, they lost significantly compared to CPI. So they, they're, the federal government essentially inflated away a big chunk of its debt by locking yields below the inflation rate for a sustained period of time. And in the current time, both uh, prior to this uh, virus crisis and now uh, during it, the Federal Reserve has once again talked about probably doing yield curve control where uh, they're willing to lock yields below the inflation rate uh, and uh, do that to control the deficit spending and the amount of debt that's, that's going to wind up uh, issued by the federal government. Yeah, that's that's great, Lynn. That makes a lot of sense. Now, I think investors next are going to be wondering how to position their portfolios for this. Obviously, you can look at gold. You, you might look at equities that can pass along pricing power, purchasing power, kind of the dividend payers that pay you to hold them. Obviously, if, if you're inspecting expecting inflation, fixed income doesn't look great. And you know, you've written some great articles on this and you also have some paid content. So I'm going to link those in the show notes, but let's uh, tell people where they can find you and uh, read more of your work and help position their portfolios for the next phase. Sure. My work's uh, primarily found on lindalden.com and I'm also on Twitter at lindaldencontact. Great. Well, thanks for coming back, Lynn. We really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can also support the show for as little as a dollar a month through our Anchor website. Just go to www.jellydonutpodcast.com. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter, at JellyDonutPod, or you can contact us via email at JellyDonutPodcast 
at protonmail.com. As a reminder, all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and do not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or advice.